This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Cooper, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for the invitation. It's lovely yeah. to see. Well, we've seen each other recently, haven't we? Have, have we? we have indeed. At your wonderful literary lunch. Mm-hmm. I hope you're going to have lots more. Well, pre-COVID, I used to have them, but it's been a few years actually. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that next year we'll probably do one in Perth. So mix it up a bit. You did one in Melbourne as well, I think. Yes, we did, yeah. But it's great fun, 28 authors, and everybody was just, I just love the interaction between Australian writers. Well, yes, but also just the the entire vibe was just absolutely fabulous. So, I mean, everything looked beautiful too and tasted Mm. beautiful Mm. and lots of beautiful people. What more could you want? What more could you want? I know. I do feel so lucky sometimes and then we've got to say that, you know, we call this work. But anyway, (laughs) what does Jane say all the time? It's not like working in the coal mine. (laughs) All right, let me introduce you. Tia is a best-selling author of contemporary and historical fiction who was once a teacher, a journalist and a farmer. Her novels include The Girl in the Painting, The Cartographer's Secret and The Fossil Hunter. And the book we're talking about today is called The Butterfly Collector, which is a gorgeous, beautiful cover. Um, It just arrived in the office about 10 minutes, the final copy, 10 minutes before this podcast. Uh, The Butterfly Collector is a twisty historical mystery set between the town of Morpeth in in 1868 and Sydney in 1922. Now, it's funny that we should be talking about Morbeth because I just interviewed a really beautiful young writer called Sammy Bailey and she said her parents moved to Morbeth so she could go to Newcastle University. So anyway, ah, there you go. There you go. Yes, you often hear these things. It's like when you buy a new car, the only car yes. is the type of car you've got. <laughs> mm. You know, that that is a, a body of work, but it's also a body of a career, if you like, a teacher, journalist, farmer. So when you left school, did you think that teaching was your thing? But no, journalism was, journalism was my okay. thing. And I struck a deal with my mother that if I could get a job, I didn't have to go and do the university entrance exam. So I got myself a job as a cub reporter on oh, the wow. newspaper, which sadly, after it was a long time ago, and at that time, um, I'm not going to tell you who was prime minister because it dates me too much. Um, a lot of newspapers went down the drain. So, of course, I lost my job mm. and then I hadn't got a job. So I was packed off. To, well, no, I wasn't packed off. I decided I was going to go to teacher's college. Mm. Um, and what, had, were you, what kind of reporting were you doing? Oh, it was a local, you know, paper yes. sitting in the courtrooms and, and, and going to fates and dreadful things and, and proofreading and... Just gen- I learned to drink whiskey when I was doing that. Too. Yes, that used to be very much part of the trade a little a while ago, long, long time ago. Yeah, and I can and I can still remember. You know, the the printing was completely different than it is now. Mm. 
Yeah, so it was quite interesting writing the the Butterfly Collective because Verity is a journalist and and I guess that sort of is a little bit of a flashback to my past. <laughs> mm. So what about teaching? What about teaching? I did that for 35 years. Wow. Um, I I trained in England and at that time I was working for a man called Sir John Lawrence and he ran a magazine called Frontier and I was working as his editorial assistant. It was a monthly magazine and it supported all sorts of what were then off-the-wall writers, uh, one of them being Solzhenitsyn. So it was it was really, I mean, I was I was doing it as a, you know, while I was at college job. Yeah. And I got my first position in London and I wasn't overexcited about it. And he said, well, he said, if you want to go overseas, go and teach in India. Uh, my grandfather founded a school in India called the Lawrence School. Oh, wow. It was up near Shimla. And I have to say Shimla now. In those days, it was Shimla. And three weeks later, I was there. <gasps> wow. You just packed up and left. Well, yes, I did. But I mean, there's a bit, bit, bit of it. It was a bit easy. Well, yes, because I wasn't doing anything else. I was just lurking and I had to, I had to make a decision as to whether I was going to start the school term in England or take up this job. I, my father worked for British Airways, so getting there was fairly easy. I should point that out. Anyway, there I was at the age of, I don't know, about 22, I think. And I worked there for a year. So tell me what was your first impression? Because that's got to be overwhelming, walking into a totally different culture. Oh, it was absolutely staggering. I didn't realise yeah. what I'd done until I got off the aeroplane. I, I, to be fair, I'd done a bit of travelling before, but I hadn't, I'd, I'd been to America and I'd been to most places, well, not a lot of places in Europe and things, but I hadn't been further afield. I, I can still remember when and it's happened, you know, you, you get off. The, in those days, there were no tunnels to from the plane to the airport. It was down the steps and across the tarmac. And I can still remember that blast of heat as I got off the plane. I had some friends um, that I'd met in London who actually were New Zealanders, because in those days, everybody was doing the overland thing in the camper vans. And um, they had friends in Delhi. So I went and stayed with them and I had about three days in Delhi, which was sort of a, a fairly gentle introduction, at least, you know, there was somebody telling me what to do. And then I got on the train and took the train north. <laughs> yeah, wow. And I know. I think I was nuts. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, when I think about it, firstly, I mean, it resonates a little bit only because um, when I finished school, I, I studied um, teaching and I realised a year into it that I didn't like children. And that's Sydney, Australia, you know, like that was a safe environment, you know, much, much easier. So when I think about you finding what the UK challenging then you go to India to teach. I mean, it must have been a shock in terms of resources. I mean, well, I, I, no, no, no. I have to. I have to put this straight. Okay. Um, the school was up in the hills. It was founded by Sir Henry Lawrence, who was the, um, you know, the luck now and all those yes. things that happened there. Um, and he, it, the school had been founded for India, Indian Army officers. Ah, uh, okay. And Got they it. also took a percentage of the local children into the right. school as well. It was a boarding school. It was basically a, what in England is called a public school, but here it's called a yeah. private school. So I know I wasn't teaching in mud huts or no. you know, out in the, 
I, I remember sending my mother a, fo- um, a photograph of, because, yeah, I said, well, no, I, I used to send rolls of film back to my mother and she'd have them processed. And I sent the first roll back from Delhi and I'd taken a picture of all these kids, I think it was outside the Red Fort, being taught, sitting on the floor cross-legged, you know, with their slates. And she nearly had heart failure because she thought that's where I was teaching. But it wasn't like that at all. And I had a nice little house in the grounds. I mean, you know, and Anaya. Um, the the principal at that time had um, actually taught, I can't remember the name of it, school in, in England where Prince Charles had gone. So it was all oh, okay. frightfully right, yeah. nice. Um, and you but, were there for a year? Yes, I was the only European there at that time. Yeah. Um, yes, I was there for a year. Um, I spent a lot of time, uh, well, there was a fairly big holiday in the middle, so I spent some time travelling around India and a friend of mine came out and we got together and went all over the place. And then, yes, and then I was there for a year and a friend of mine was who lived in Australia was coming back overland um, to back to Australia from England. And so I met up with him in Bangkok and we did the Southeast Asia thing. And then because my father worked for British Airways, it was flights were cheap. So he bought me a flight from Singapore to Sydney. He said, why don't you come to Sydney? So I came to Sydney and I never went home. <laughs> yeah, wow. What do you think we learn from, I, you know, I understand that it was probably a private school, but living in a community that's so vastly different to what we know, how do you think that that shapes us? I think it certainly puts the boot on the other foot because you are in the minority mm. and being in the minority I mean, everybody was absolutely delightful, but it's um, it's different. And mm. I think you learn, I think you learn tolerance. I think you learn acceptance. You learn to appreciate acceptance. That's mm. Probably, mm. probably more. Um, you also learn not to say what you think always because it can be quite tricky. Mm. Mm. Um, but I had, I, I had a fantastic time. They they actually offered me a um, an ongoing contract, and I had a lot of. It took a lot of soul searching, but it was, the question was, did I want to stay and basically become an Indian, albeit an upper class Indian living in that in that situation, or what was I going to do? So when this friend of mine turned up that solved the problem, I, I decided I'd, I'd pack my bags and have a look at the rest of Southeast Asia. Did you like, I mean, I know you did it for 35 years, but did you like teaching? Did you yes, like I love it. Yeah. Um, I when I first got to Australia, that um, I taught English as a second language, mm-hmm. um, and they were very dubious about giving me a class to teach because they didn't think that um, I'd be able to because the Indian education system would be so formal. You know, the experience that I had had. But anyway, eventually the Department of Education came good, and I got a job um, teaching English as a second language. And I did that for quite a while um, out in the western suburbs and in Crown Street. By then I'd, I was pregnant. I think I'd had my daughter by then. And and I'd, I'd married, I'd had my daughter. And we built a house on the Central Coast. And so I went up to the Central Coast, set up the ESL thing, um, itinerant ESL up there because there weren't a lot of um, second language speakers at that time on the Central Coast. And then I got fed up with it and and went into a class. But I also, oh, and, and in between time, I taught adults English as well. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think that was quite, um, I think the experience that I had 
of being in a country where I basically could, I mean, in India, a lot of people speak English, but I had no knowledge of Hindi whatsoever, yeah. helped in teaching English yeah. as a second language. Anyway, then I went into the classroom and I loved it and I loved it and I loved it and I kept on doing it. Um, and I loved being in the class. I mean, there were days, you know, that I didn't. Of course. I, yeah. I did actually like kids, but I like, you know, it was yeah. all. It was, I, I think I was quite good at it too. And then I ended up at Pete's Ridge, which is um, sort of fairly close to where I live now. And I was playing principal, not acting principal, and I hated it. I couldn't stand it. And by this time, I'm in my mid to late 50s because it was just, I wasn't, well, I was I was teaching because it was a small school, but I was also fielding all the paperwork and the problems and the angsts. And, and I thought, I'm going to take, I can't go. I don't want to go anymore. And it was the first time I'd ever, I mean, there have been days where I don't want to go to work. Yeah, for sure. Not, this was like, I don't want to go. So I decided I was going to take long service leave. And it turned out that I had 12 months up my belt because of the school holidays as well, which I didn't realise. Um, and I, once again, like coming to Australia, I never went back. Mm. And I decided I was going to do what I'd always wanted to do, actually, and write a book. And ultimately, the rest is history. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Okay, I want to come back to writing a book, obviously, but I want to go back and talk about, as you know, I visit the States frequently and I've been going to San Francisco for 10 or 15 years, every year. And I feel that Australia and America are so similar. Like, you know, we, we speak English, we, um, we live a Western life, I guess. Um, and you think that there are huge similarities and particularly in Australia where we've grown up watching US television shows, but it's so different, different in the way we think, different in the way we behave, different in the way we live our lives. Did you think that, what did you think when you came to Australia? Because you would think that it would be similar, but it's actually not, is it? Um, it, it was made easier because there were people that I knew who were English that had been living in Australia for some time. Sure. Uh, As a cultural experience, like, you I know. Found, I, I, found the, I found the language incredibly dif- difficult. Which yes. Is tough, yes. And I, I mean, I still do because I, if I wear a vest, I wear it because I'm cold underneath my shirt. An Australian wears a vest, they wear a waistcoat. You know, why are they using the wrong words? Um, because we speak English. So that that was interesting. But also behaviourally, we're different. 
yes, we are well, certainly different the Americans. Um, I've spent some time in America too. Um, I think I think Australia was a lot closer to England than America was. Yes, for sure. I'd agree with that. Yeah. I think I, I mean, I haven't got rid of my English accent. I can't do that. I tried terribly hard for a while because I wanted to be the same as yeah. Um, So I suppose that's a cultural difference. I've never really thought about it, actually. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I I really, I'd been to San Francisco, you mentioned San Francisco, and I remember being absolutely gobsmacked by the harbour and the bridge and the, beautiful. It is. It was beautiful. And then I got to Sydney and it was sort of like a friendly San Francisco. Does that make Mm. sense? Mm. And no, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and by the time I had a child, there was there was no way I was going to take a child back to England and bring them up in England when they could, you know, grow up on the beach and and the sky's higher in Australia. That was the other thing I really liked the weather. I mean, I totally stupid. agree with that. One of the things that I miss when I'm travelling, and as you know, I do a lot of travelling. I've just come back from Europe and I was there for a couple of months. But again, the the first thing I notice when I get home is how big the sky is. Oh. I think, I think every single one of my books that's got an English character in it, they all say, oh, the sky is higher and it's bluer. And I think I've written that before. And I think, oh, that's what they think. That's going to mm, stay there. Mm, mm. So, yeah, so you enjoyed teaching and then that was it. You've you've given up on that. And you had you thought about writing at all or had you written in those years that you were teaching? Yes, I had. I'd, um, as I, I mean, obviously the the journalist thing. I'd always been through teachers' college. I, I I couldn't make up my mind whether I wanted to do English or history as a major, so I did both of them. My English lecturer, I can, who I remember very well from from college, um, actually went on to become the poet laureate. Oh wow! And I think we guess exactly. So it was like, oh wow, you know, this is. I, I feel as though I have a connection with this, but. It's a hard way to earn money mm. if you haven't got any money behind you. Then right, right the way through through teaching, I was always the one that did all the PR stuff and wrote all the um, stuff for school, mm. PR things for school. Then then I, I entered a Mills and Boone competition, one very wet, rare, I think it was in the early 80s. There was an uh, in the Women's Weekly or something and, you know, you had to write a 20,000 word story and first prize was a publishing contract. So I thought, oh, it's a breeze, I can do that. And so I did it. <laughs> well, I won second prize, and, uh, which was a bottle of perfume. Well, that's close enough, though. <laughs> but well, no, that I, says I, that I, you're, you're a writer. No, I was, I was absolutely outraged because I thought I should have, should have been able to do better than that. And, and so I wasn't ever going to do it again. Um, and I concentrated on teaching, and then I got involved with alpacas. But that was I was still teaching at the same time. And for a while, I well, I started off, and then um, the PR thing for the Alpaca Association in Australia when it first started, and, and wrote the newsletter and things like that. So yes, I've been writing, but no, not fiction. Right. Okay. So then you decided you're going to write fiction. Did you do any? research or did you take a class or did you just think I think I know what the story is? I was foraging I was doing some sort of vague jobs for other people sort of fiddling around with websites and writing some again promotional stuff for people Mm -hmm. and I was flying around the computer and I saw this thing called the new voices competition which was the one going back to the 80s all over again so I thought oh 
we'll have a go at that. <laughs> and I think you had to submit the first three chapters. So I knocked that off and it got absolutely pan. But it showed me what I was doing wrong. There were all these um, established writers were going on there and they were saying, you know, this didn't work because you've done this, this hadn't worked because you've done the other. And I rewrote that and it eventually became a book that was published by a, an e-book publisher in Canada, which was, uh, I eventually got the rights back to it and self-published it, but it was a bit of a disaster. It it's no longer exists. You can probably find it if you look on the, on the, on the internet, but I don't think I'm, it's anything I'm proud of. Anyway, and then I decided I was going to write a historical and as luck would have it, um, Kate Cuthbert had just started. Everybody said, nobody will buy an Australian historical. And Kate Cuthbert had just started Escape Publishing. So I sent it to her and she accepted it. Mm. Why did you decide on historical fiction? Oh, well, A, because I have a background and an interest in history. I, I've studied it for ages. I'm, it fascinates me. Um, and I've read a lot of, even when I was a kid, I used to read a lot of historical fiction, Rosemary Sutcliffe and, you know, those kind of things. And I was living in Wollombi by then. And Wollombi is a very historic little town, or was a very historic, well, no, it was going to be be an important town in New South Wales, but it didn't happen, fortunately, because it's made meant that it stayed the same. Um, And I was helping out in the museum and doing things like that. And so I thought, I think I'd like to do that. I'll give that a whirl and see what happens. And I think my voice suited it better, actually. I think perhaps my age as well. And, yes, yeah, so that, that was how that started. And then it just felt more comfortable. Mm. I spoke to Philippa Gregory last night. Ooh, how exciting. Yeah, she was incredibly interesting. And she started writing historical fiction 40 years ago. So she started early. But we were talking about the accuracy of history and when she's researching and what she picks up and brings into her books and what she doesn't. Talk to me about your research process. Well, it's actually quite interesting because I hadn't realised until two or three books ago that there's actually a research thread that runs through my books. Mostly it started with The Naturalist Daughter, which was the fourth, well, the first book I wrote for HQ and my fourth book, print book. And it's about one of the characters has to take a platypus back to um, England. And I sort of like... I've got visions of this poor animal slopping around in a bell jar full of alcohol and it was just too disgusting for words. So I ended up um, exploring taxidermy, which possibly is even more disgusting, which totally fascinated me. And then the next book, The Girl and the Painting, is all about a taxidermy shop, you see, that I found in Sydney. So there's this, it sort of goes on and on. Mm. Well, that's what I talked to Philippa about, that, you know, almost every story, there's a thread of another story. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, can, I, can, I mean, I can go on for hours about this. It's, it's one of my yes. favourite topics, but I won't, I won't bore you. But it's absolutely there. And so the Butterfly Collector, the reason that the Scott sisters are in there and butterflies are there is because when I wrote The Cartographer's Secret, I was reading um, Ludwig Leichhardt's diaries and he spent time with the Scots on the island in the hunter that crops up in this one. Do you know, there are too many coincidences today. I just interviewed just before you. So last night I interviewed Philippa Gregory, coincidence, and just an hour before I spoke to you, I interviewed a beautiful young woman called Sammy Bailey. And now she 
told me about the Scott sisters because she entered a prize and submitted it to the Australian Natural Museum and Um, she then got to study the Scott sisters. She's not the one that does the most amazing paintings as well, is she? Yes. yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. Yes. Is that just such a total coincidence today? Well, it isn't it, isn't it? Serendipitous. Because here we go, the threads. Yes, you see, exactly. And so so that's what what happens with research. Um, I think my favourite thing about research is when you find that line that says an unknown person. Um, it's happened a few times. And in the Butterfly Collector, I'd, I'd spoken to the um, Australian Museum about um, monarch butterflies, and they, they said, well, we haven't got much, actually. But they'd sent me a couple of articles, and there was one line, and, and these the monarch butterflies were really interesting. I'm going to bore you now. I'm not going, I'm not going to do my information dump. They didn't arrive in Australia until about the 1870s. And they thought that they'd come, been blown from Vanuatu in a series of cyclones that were happening. There was one line down at the bottom that said, Mr. Olive, who happened to be the entomologist at that time at the Australian Museum, made note of a reference of them being seen earlier than that. And so that's so the, the fictional character in here is the person that saw it earlier. Yeah, extraordinary. I love, I love those. Yeah, it's really, really, um, it is. Well, anyway, you're probably not surprised, but we are out of time. The new book is called The Butterfly Collector. We could talk for ages, actually. We, yeah. <laughs> we might need to, to do another lunch. Congratulations. Beautiful book all around and a divine cover, I've got to say. Darren Holt, we have to say thank you, Darren. He's brilliant. Mm. He does those marvellous covers. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. It's lovely. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? 
the federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.